My name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just have the privilege to, uh, yeah, go before um, God's people with his word. And so uh, my prayer, as well as our prayers, pastors, as is as always, is that our responsibility and our task is not to entertain anyone. That during this time, our task is of one one responsibility that we have, and that is to simply make plain what God has to say in his word. So that we, as a, that's my, oh, how God thinks and what he wants from us, and so that we can make the best use of our life. And so that's my only task and my only hope this day is that God would, by his grace, allow me to instruct his people. That at the end of this time, that we would see Jesus more rightly, Jesus more plain, and that he truly would be the source and the ultimate source of all of our satisfaction and joy. So before we begin, uh, let us go to God one more time in prayer. Father, I, I recognize in times like this such a great need, need for you to show up. In and of my own strength, Father, I can produce nothing. In and of my own strength, I don't have the words to say that can actually even transform a heart, Father. But I thank you that you give us your word, that, you, that your word truly is living, that it works in the hearts of men and women to change and to remove and to cut away the things that would keep us from loving you the way you deserve to be loved. So my prayer is that, Father, would your spirit move, would your spirit even now help us to even be attentive to and, and desire to hear your voice, Will we be not distracted by the person on stage, Father, but would we, would we be able to see how beautiful your son Jesus is? Would that lead us to greater worship of you? Father, would you... Use this time to sift away all cares for this world. Use this time to remove the desires for approval and acceptance from anybody who are but you. Father, the message today is plain. Father, you are enough. And though it's easier to save and to actually live as a, and to live out the implications of that, Father, I pray that today would be one step closer to being able to say those words with all integrity that you are enough. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in a very familiar text, Philippians 1.21. It's a text that you'll find um, that there are conferences that use these this verse, that this is in many ways uh, very familiar to the Christian jargon. This idea that Paul would bring up to the church that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But one thing that stuck out to me as I prepared and as I studied these verses is I recognized that the fragility, how fragile life is. When we think about this thing called life, I think we can become so, so used to just kind of moving through it, acting as if tomorrow is actually promised. And so we don't really give too much thought to what really is the meaning of life. I think for me, this was brought or made even more real in about three weeks ago, several of us, several of the pastors and several members of this church, we sat in the pews of a funeral of a young teenage boy. In the last two years, I would say I've probably been to more funerals in the last two years than I have in the 
30 plus years of life. And so though every funeral was different, this one impacted me in a completely different way. You see, this this young man came up to the pews and had come to this church. And this was a young man who I coached baseball with. I taught him the fundamentals of how to throw the ball. I got an opportunity to tell him about Jesus and to talk to him about the matters of life. And so if you had told me that two years ago that I'd be now in turn sitting at his funeral, I would have called you a liar. But there's something about life that in an instant it can change. In an instant, things can be going on as usual, and then tomorrow, your entire world is different. And that has to force us to ask the question, what does it truly mean to live? What am I chasing after? What am I living for? And I think for us, I understand that we're in this setting, that we're in church. And so if I ask the question, what is life? The first thing that comes to mind would probably be Jesus. We would easily be able to say, no, Jesus is the the meaning of life. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we really would take this time to reflect and ponder on, is that really my reality? Am I, is Jesus really enough for me in the here and now? I think that some questions that can even help us drive this home even more is, what is the true driving force behind you live behind the way We live our lives. What is it that informs the decisions that we make? What we're willing to do or not do, what we will hold on to so tightly and the things that we will part ways with. Where do we run to in hard times? Who do we run to? What is that passion that dominates every area of our lives? You see, for many of us in this room, I think that we can find ourselves thinking about life in maybe these ways. Life is simply about existing. We live life in this kind of like animal-like state, almost like a plant or a flower. We're just here and then one day we'll be gone. For others, life may be about experiencing all the pleasures this world has to offer. So much so that we'll reorient our lives to move to places for greater opportunity to meet those desires. For some, life may simply be filled with suffering, filled with pain and hardship. And so for me to live is nothing more than just to not fall away. It's nothing more than pushing through something hopeless and aimless, not really knowing where I'm going to go. And though these may be the common views, if we're honest, even for those of us who are Christians in this room, oftentimes we can find our pla- find ourselves being in that very place, thinking that life is about things, that life is simply about wading through, like walking through quicksand. Every step is just leading to our death. What joy is it in that? And so today in this text, though it's familiar, my prayer is that we would not approach familiar scriptures from a place of thinking that we already know what it means. That we would not allow the familiarity of this particular verse to remove the weight by which that the weight behind which Paul desires to inform God's people that Jesus is enough. 
So let's dive right in. We don't have much time. Let's get right into the text. And so we're just going to start right at Philippians 121, which reads, For to me, to live for is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul starts off with, for to me. In order to even understand the thrust behind this statement, I think we got to understand who Paul is by looking back, not at the Apostle Paul as we know him, but looking back at the man formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. You see, for those who have read their Bibles and those that are familiar with Saul, we'll, we'll, we'll know, we'll see the first cameo appearance of Saul in Acts 7, where Paul enters the scene, and the, or Saul enters this scene, and he's mentioned, and the very first thing that we hear about Saul is that he's a man who's standing in the cut while his team or his minions go and perform a hit on this man named Stephen. That Saul stands in the background and we hear about the stoning of an innocent human being, a man who just followed and believed that Jesus was his ultimate hope. And there Saul stands behind and the Bible says that he approved his execution. You see, Saul wasn't always the apostle Paul. Saul had a story that, that, that in many ways points to God's goodness. Saul was mentioned to be somebody who was ravaging the church. His life, his main pursuit was to destroy the Christians, the people who followed Jesus, to eradicate them from the face of the earth. Saul's aim for living was wrapped around this idea that for, in many ways, The Jesus that you're following is an opponent. And so when he mentions things like I was an enemy, you have to ask yourself if there's any man who has propped himself in a place to to receive all of God's justice and all of God's wrath, it has to be the man that's killing Jesus' followers. And so Paul, as he's living out his pursuits, as he's living out destroying God's church. I think what's comical about this scenario and what helps us to gain insight about how does God review the rebellion of man is if we look to Psalm 2, Psalms 2. And it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And yet he who excuse me, and yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. God sees exactly Paul's plight. He sees exactly where Paul is going. He sees Paul's pursuit to destroy God in a sense. And yet he sits on his throne and he merely snickers. You have to see that all of this is leading up to an encounter that the Saul of Tarsus is going to have with the real and living God. That God, though he had every right to inflict justice on Paul, what does God do? Acts chapter 9. Paul, though he was still breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord, in an instant, he's knocked off his horse. In an instant, everything around him, his entire reality has changed. He can't see. All he, all he can do is hear a voice. And that voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And how does Saul respond? 
Who is it? Who are you, Lord? To which he hears the words, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. We have to understand the magnitude of what's taking place here. We have to understand that Saul was an opponent, an insolent opponent to God. And yet in an instant, God, instead of inflicting justice, he gives to him mercy. Mercy. Paul is now put in the position to where everything that he ever knew had changed. And yet in this moment, as God reveals what he has done with Paul, look at the response of the church. They say, I know about that man, Paul. I know he was killing people. I know he has the right to put us to death. You're telling me, and Ananias is saying this, you are telling me that now I am to help him? To which God responds in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, and he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In a moment, Saul's life is changed. Saul is no longer Saul, but now he's Paul. And his purpose for living is to make known to everyone who Jesus is. But look at what he says. He says, and he will suffer for my sake. Church, we've got to put to death our version of cultural Christianity. We've got to put to death this picture of Jesus only wanting us to live our best life now. But no, the Jesus of the Bible says, no, it's not about you living your best life now. No, the Jesus of the Bible is going to say, I want you to lay your life down for my sake, for the life to come. So now Paul's ambition and his aim isn't for for what's going to happen in this world. No, my aim is that everything, I will use everything I have to make Jesus known to everybody. And that what's coming for me, what I have stored up for me in the life to come is far greater than what I have here. This is Paul. We as church have to understand that there are family members in our life that are caught up in addiction. That there are people in our neighborhoods that we'll look to and we'll say, not them, Lord. They're too far off. But what we'll find in the person of Paul, what we'll see in the work that God does in Paul's life is that there's no one too far. Isaiah says it best. He says, no, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Let me say that again. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. That there is nobody beyond the grip and the grace of Lord Jesus Christ. That God can reach low into the hell and reach high above the heavens and he can snatch whoever he wants. And so church, let this be an encouragement for us to continue to pray. Haven't you found yourself praying and praying and praying for somebody, hoping that God would save them and then the fatigue sets in and you functionally are acting as though God can't do what you're asking for as if God somehow is ignoring your petitions or your or your cries. No. 
Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. As we look at the, uh, the, the, as we look at Saul and we see his life, this encounter had changed everything. And so as a result, Paul starts in verse 21. He says, for to me, it's personal. It's a conviction. This isn't something that Paul had read in a book. This isn't something that he did a Google search to find out. Paul is saying with all conviction as he lays in a prison cell, look, y'all, for to me, for to me. This is what fuels him. This is what fuels the conviction. I found that as I've walked with the Lord now for over a decade, there are moments in my life where God has allowed things that I ultimately had placed my trust in to simply bottom out. That there are things that I didn't even realize I had placed my trust in, like a job. Like that nine to five that removed that two, that biweekly paycheck. You know what? I didn't know that God was my provider until he removed the crutch of that paycheck. I didn't know that God could provide even when the savings account that I had prepared and planned for dwindled down to zero and that tomorrow those bills were due. And yet God provided that God's graciously exposes the idols of our hearts. By allowing the things that we place ultimate trust in to simply bottom out, they cave way. Nothing in our life and nothing in our lives can simply ever produce. Nothing in our life can ever take the place of God. And so God is going to always put us in positions to where we're going to have to depend on him and not depend on the things that he's given in our lives, given to us in our lives. And so Paul, in saying, for to me to live is Christ, what he's saying is that If you would ask me the question, what am I living for? Then I could, with all integrity, I could say, I'm living for Christ. But I think he's going to go a little further and he's going to say, we can ask the question, what does that really mean? What does it really mean to live for Christ? Is life simply about waking up every morning, going to my job, eating, celebrating, going to sleep and doing it again and again and again? Is that about, is that what life is? No, I think Paul is going to force us to dig deeper. Paul is going to point to us and show that our life's work and our life's aim has to be not simply about mundane rhythms of life. But no, living for Christ is going to require everything we have. And so he goes down and he says, This is my reality for to me to live is Christ. One would have to assume that Paul had experienced everything that there had to be in life in order to make a statement like this. It's easy to say to live is Christ is. Yeah, that's that's right. I agree. It's another thing to say. But living for Christ may cost me my family. Living for Christ may cost me my job. Living for Christ may cost me my health. It may cost me my everything. Can we say that with all integrity? What makes Paul unique is that we see in Galatians 1.13 through 14 where Paul talks about his former life. Paul had tasted what morality brought him. He had 
followed the law to the T, not with perfection, but he did it better than most of us. And he says that apart from Christ, the morality that I place confidence in, I found that when I was put in a situation where I was given opportunity to persecute God's people, I did that. Paul had excelled up the ladder and climbed the ladder of religious and educational institutions. And what he find is found is that though I achieved those things at the end of it, apart from Christ, I was still ignorant. He had had money and he had been without. And yet Paul says what I found that it wasn't about having money or not having any at all. At the end of the day, I learned to be content because without Christ, none of that matters. The things the world had to offer Paul, he had found that at the end of the day, they were all bankrupt. They all left him bankrupt. You know, being in the world is, and even as a Christian, it's one of those things where on my best day, I feel as though I can say this with integrity. On my best day, I can say, yeah, to live is Christ. But isn't it funny how subtle the cult, the current of the culture creeps in. Isn't it funny how you can be at a place where, yes, Jesus, you are everything. And then tomorrow your job is more important. Your spouse is more important. Your kids are more important. The concerns for the day to day start to creep in and they start to choke out so much so that you find yourself in a place where Jesus not only isn't your everything, but Jesus isn't even on the radar. The enticements of this world are simply meant to please. They're meant to satisfy the things that are pretty, the things that are, uh, the things that are beautiful, the things that would make our flesh feel good, the things that would exalt us to a level of power and fame. That's what this world has to offer. And in so many ways, we all crave those things more than Jesus. Paul had realized that There was nothing that this world could offer him that would ultimately satisfy him. That at the end of the day, when I say, when he says, for to me to live is Christ, what he's saying is that at the end of the day, all of that stuff failed me. But the thing that I find and the thing that I hold to be the greatest of treasures is that Jesus is enough. All of us have to be confronted with the reality that For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul in the end? What gain is that really? For Paul to say that he'll count everything as loss is one thing. For Paul to say I count everything as loss in comparison to knowing the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's another thing. He could have said, I count all things as lost for the car that I want to drive or the job that I want to have or the ministry opportunities that I want. He could have said all of those things, but no, he says, it's, I count it all lost for the surpassing knowledge of knowing my Lord Jesus Christ. One commentary reads it like this, and he says, To live is Christ means to live depends on Christ. To live honors Christ. The foundation, the center, the direction, the power, and the meaning of life is Christ. Is that true for you today? 
Is that true? If we view life through the lens of what opportunities or what meets all of my needs, whether it be comfort, whether it be safety, whatever it may be, but we don't think of it through the lens of ultimately living this life is in mere preparation for the life to come, we'll find ourselves chasing after things that at the end of the day will stand back and all we will have is regrets. For to me, to live is Christ. The first half of that statement is a little easier to say. The first half of this verse is a little bit easier to stomach, the idea of living for Christ. But yet, Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, to die is gain. When, when we think about death, I think the thing that first comes to mind is how can we avoid it? How can we delay it? How can we ensure that this doesn't happen tomorrow? That the culture would tell us that suffering and death is something that we simply are trying to solve. It's a problem. We want to alleviate it. And yet here Paul makes mention of death, and he says that it's to gain. Death is something to gain. How countercultural that is. How, how, how that, that so easily push against, pushes against what's natural. And I think that Paul, in saying that, he's going to point to two things. One, when Paul says to die is gain, He's saying that I'm not looking at my circumstances merely at or looking at death as merely an escape from my situation. The dope thing about what Paul says or Philippians two, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Philippians one. The, the amazing thing about as you read Philippians, Paul doesn't ever complain about where he's at. Paul is in jail. He's waiting upon somebody else to decide whether or not tomorrow will be the day that he dies. And so Paul, throughout this letter, not one time does he mention how how difficult it is. Not one time does he mention, hey, I wish I was somewhere else. No, Paul, throughout this letter, he actually says, I rejoice for where I'm at. I rejoice because I understand that where God has me right now really serves to advance the gospel. And then not only that, as as he writes to the other Christians, as he writes to this church, he says, you know what? Not only am I rejoicing. But I'm actually inviting you to rejoice. Let's think about that real quick. Let's imagine if one of our pastors went on a mission trip and in the and in them going on a mission trip in a foreign country, one of them was taken captive. And as they're there, the one opportunity that we have to write back to this particular church to let them know how we're doing. We're not complaining about our circumstances. We're saying God has me here Though I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow, this is where God wants me to be. This is what really serves to advance the gospel. And so, therefore, I want you to celebrate. When we think of um, uh, prisoners of war, if we think about it in natural terms, there are movies. I love war movies. There are times in war movies where you see opponents taken captive. And that the whole aim of now the country for where this opponent has been taken captive is to try to retrieve them. And in the worst case scenarios, there are those times where 
this prisoner's of wars, this prisoner of war's life is taken. And for that, those individuals to take that person's life, it's deemed as a loss. We've we've lost, we've been defeated. However, for the Christian, it's different. For the Christian, that if one of our pastors wrote back to us and said, This this serves a higher purpose than than, than merely my life being than merely my life being spared. No, that if I were to lose my life, God isn't gonna waste it. God isn't gonna let me die and simply there be no gain. No, God is going to use even my death as the final witness stamped to the world that no. You may take his life, but ultimately I'm going to testify of my goodness to the rest of the world through it. This is what God does. So Paul is not saying to the Philippian church, hey, y'all, it's so tough. I don't I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow, but man, I wish you guys could come and rescue me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the reason why I'm saying that to die is gain. Not to escape these circumstances. If God would desire to spare my life and use it for his glory, amen. But if God would desire to take my life in this moment, I'm fully confident that he would use even my death to point people back to him. You know the beautiful thing about Christian funerals of brothers and sisters who are no longer with us and are with the Lord? The beautiful thing is that at that funeral, we get to hear about God's work in their life. We get to hear about God's grace and the impact that he's been able to use that person to change and ultimately help other people. And then it's from the testimony that now we're brought back to a sober view of life. We're back back where we're able to recalibrate and we're able to understand that though my brother and sister is no longer here with us. That the gospel is now going forth to people who would never come into the four walls of this church. Family members that would never sit in these chairs, would never sit under this preaching. And now for maybe the first time, they're able to hear about the goodness of God. They're able to see the straight paths of the Lord. And that even in death, now people are coming to Jesus. People's lives are being changed. Well, that's how Paul is viewing his life. That's how Paul is even viewing his death to say, God, I want to honor you and I want to glorify you so much so that even in my death, I want you to be glorified. Even in my death, you are sovereign enough to use it for your glory and for your purposes. But I think the second thing is that Paul considers life as gain because he's not focused on the here and now. Turn with me to Revelations Revelations 21, and it reads, verses 2. It reads, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is within He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. 
Behold, I am making all things new. Death is viewed as gain to Paul because he knows that no, this is not an escape from my present circumstances, but no, it's the reuniting from it's that my reuniting with the person that I love most deeply. As I wrestle with even thinking through what is the what is dying is dying really gain to me? There were things that I had in mind that ultimately I think I would regret some things. I think that if Jesus were to take me tomorrow, there would be concerns for this life that, if I'm honest, would I would somewhat be upset. There are things that I want to be able to see my daughter grow up and walk her down the aisle. I want to see, be able to see my son graduate from high school. I want to be able to spend the next 30 plus years with my wife and watch our kids grow and grandkids and all of these things. I want to be able to do that. But if I think about it, if I think about the reality that those are good things, however, those aren't better than being with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those aren't better, y'all. It's not. And that may be hard to swallow, and that may be hard to come to a place where that's true. And that's why I think that in the here and now, we're not talking about perfection. Paul, in making this statement, is not talking about being perfectly at a place to where this is his true thing. In in chapter 3, he talks about, no, this is what he's pressing towards. He's pressing towards this goal. He's pressing towards this aim. That, God, I pray that you would be such a treasure in my life that even if I were to depart, it wouldn't be for the streets of gold. It wouldn't be for the mansions that you promised us. No, that it would be because the one that I love most is there. That's what eternal life is for the Christian. Not a place where it's just beauty. There's, there's no pain. There's the absence of pain, the absence of suffering. Yeah, those things are there. But if all of those, if you had the option to go to a place like that and Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? That's what we have to wrestle with. Paul is pointing to Jesus as being both the object and the nature of his greatest affection. To die as gain is a union with Christ. And that's the ultimate goal of his life. For those that like restaurants, I love steakhouses. Not only do I love steakhouses, I love Mexican restaurants because one of my favorite meals is fajitas, right? And so the dope thing about fajitas is that for those of us that are from Texas, you've probably heard of this restaurant called Papacitos. Anybody heard about that? So Papacitos is this chain in Texas. They've got it here as well. And when you order the fajitas, there's this experience that happens. You get the fajitas and... You know, you're just waiting at your table, and then all of a sudden, it's like everybody in the restaurant stops. Because out of these doors come this, this, this saucer that's sizzling. And it's sizzling, right? And it's sizzling. That's, that's what's dope about it. And then not only is it sizzling, and you can hear the crackles and the pops, but you see the smoke coming in, and then you begin to almost catch the aroma. You're like, oh, it's almost here. Oh, we about to feast, y'all. It's almost here. Paul's life right here, it's oozing those same salivations. 
Paul's life right here is saying, yeah, I'm suffering. Yeah, I don't know what tomorrow is bringing. But, I, but all that means for me is that I'm one step closer. I can start to feel the drool rolling down my mouth. I can almost taste it. I'm one step closer. So that means that if I leave tomorrow, that guess what? I get to feast. I get to be with my Savior. That's what Paul is saying. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Everyone in this room will have problems in your life. Everyone. There's no escape from it. Unless we have in view what's awaiting us, we'll always focus on these problems and just think that there's no hope. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For our light, momentary afflictions. Can somebody say that, say that with me? For our light, momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The beauty of knowing Jesus is that we don't have to focus on circumstances. They're light afflictions. They're equivalent of me running through my house and stubbing my toe. Yeah, it'll hurt for a moment, but it ain't going to kill me. This is what it means to have in view the mind of Christ is to think that though my time on earth is limited, though I don't have much time left, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to do everything I can to make Jesus known. I'm going to do everything I can to use every area of my life to bring him glory. And if it costs me my life, then so be it, because it's better. It's better. It's better to be with him. Light, momentary afflictions. And it's easy for us to look at the life of Paul and to think as somehow Paul's Christianity is different than ours. We can look at the life of Paul and look at his experience and then think that God called Paul to something that he doesn't call us to. But if you read this book, if you search through these scriptures, what you'll find is that Paul's life was in no way, it was in by no means exceptional. Paul's life was by no means distinct. No, in all actuality, Paul was just walking in the same footsteps that his master. He's walking in the same footsteps as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only is, as he, is he doing that, but no, he in turn, later in the chapters, he says, no, and you too. Follow in my steps. Follow, emulate me. Walk in the same manner that I've walked before you. And so when we think about our church, Cornerstone Church, there's two appeals that I want to give to our members. Two appeals. You may never find yourself in a hostile Christian environment. You may never be across the country in some Middle Eastern country or in the jungle to where your faith, the test of your faith will be the taking of your very own life. However, there are some within our body 
who that very well may be what God wants for your life. The Christian life is not simply meant to be marked by comfort and safety. It's not meant to simply be casually come to service week after week and then to go about being concerned about our own pursuits and our own endeavors and simply sprinkling Christ on top of them like we do confectioner sugar on donuts. No, the Christian life is is a calling to follow after Jesus. And the Jesus that we find in the Bible, not the one we make up, When we think about this idea of giving our lives for Jesus, even our death. Revelation 6, I'm going to read it real quick. Verses 9 and the word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as themselves had been. Those that have given their life for Christ are not sitting in heaven thinking about, man, I didn't get a chance to own that Audi. They're not sitting under the throne of God and concerned about, man, I didn't have a chance to get married. No, when they sit beneath the throne of God, when they have access to the creator of the universe, the thing that they plead for is that, God, when will your justice, when will your justice finally be done? When will you avenge us? There's no regret. And yet to their questioning God asks or God tells them there's there's more to be there's more to come brothers I've got a number and there's more brothers and sisters who I have ordained that I have sanctioned to give their life as a testament to this world of their coming judgment and so an appeal to us as members of this church one of the things that we've been praying for for over a year now that God would raise up missionaries. That God would raise up within our church people who will be sent out to go and make Jesus known, not only in the hard places, but through the outermost parts of our world. But on the flip side, my other admonishment to our church, when we think about missions, when we think about how do we glorify God even with our bodies through living and even in death, is to say, less than a mile from here, either way, there are neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods where people live. People like you and I. People who come from less than we have. People from broken families. People from the, the what the world would say are the worst. The ones that we keep over there because they're not worthy to be a part of what we have going on here. And for us as Christians, if we really are going to honestly, with all integrity, be able to say, for to live is Christ, to die is gain, then that means that we're going to have to start changing. 
We're going to stop, stop. We're going to have to stop holding on so tightly to where we, where we're willing to live, where we're willing to go. We have to pray that God would free us from the tyranny of always asking the questions, what will happen to me? What will happen if I go? You know why it's so amazing that we can live for Christ is that God has died defeating death, defeating the grave, defeating Satan, so that in his followers, that when they die, they don't have to have fear. What is it that man can do to us but yet destroy our body and yet in an instant we will spend eternity with Christ? What is it? The thrust behind these appeals is that if we see the brokenness of our communities, if we see the hopelessness, if we see the desperate needs and yet we ignore it, who else will go? Who else will go? I talked to some of the pastors over last week, and, you know, we talked about that funeral. And then about a few weeks later, um, or a few days later, um, a few of us, we went and we did a barbecue in the community. And it was from that moment that I realized that even though God had had full control of this circumstance, of the circumstances in these communities, other communities like it, that there began to have this burden. There began to be this burden of, man, there really are unreached neighborhoods in our country. There really are unreached neighborhoods in our city. There are places where on the block I can't identify a Christian family. I can't identify a Christian home. Miss Linda drives 25 to 30 minutes from the northeast of here simply to bring kids to church who otherwise never would be exposed to the Jesus that we know and love and talk about. Weekly, daily even. But yet God has positioned us as a church on this side of town to put on display the greatness of Jesus Christ. And though, church, I think that men have relocated and we've replanted ourselves into the Westview and the West End neighborhood. But, y'all, if we just stay here, how will the gospel, how will the good news of Jesus Christ get to those? Get to those men and women. How will that young child who we look at and we'll say they're too far gone, how will we give opportunity even for the Lord to say, nah, I, I see him and that I look at those neighborhoods and I salivate because I know that there are people within that community that I'm going to call to be my own and that I've already declared that he is mine and she is mine and they are mine and that this group is mine and that all he's asking for uh, from us is to participate in the work that he's been doing from the day one. Christians, to follow Jesus is not an obligation. It's not a burdensome task. God gives us the privilege of being to come alongside him, 
to live a life where he rings us out, uses everything that he's given us, our education, our influence, our platforms, our marriages, our families. He uses all of that. And he says, I don't want you to just do that for your own personal enjoyment. I don't want you to do that for your own selfish gain or ambitions. No, I want you to do that for my glory and for my gain and the advancement of my kingdom that one day, though you've gone through all those sufferings, though you've gone through all those pains, though it was hard, one day you'll sit with me in eternity and you'll have no regrets. You'll have no regrets. So as we close... I want us all to, even right now, I just want us to pray. One thing as pastors that we felt like the Lord was leading us to do is at the beginning of the year, we're going to go into a time of fasting and prayer and really seek the Lord just about what the direction of this church, praying for one another, really wanting God to see, see God move throughout our neighborhoods and throughout our cities. But I think the first thing that we have to do in preparation of that is to freely confess where we are. I think we all have to take time to reflect on, is this really my reality? Jesus has never changed the call. He's never changed the invitation. The invitation has always been, follow me. The question that we all must answer is, are we willing to go? Are we willing to lay it all all down on the line? for Christ because he's more than enough so now um, we're not I'm not going to just stand up here and pray for everyone um, I believe God hears the prayers of his people and so right now um, whoever you're sitting next to um, let's just take a few minutes and let's just pray you can just pray loudly God can hear us even if we're all praying at the same time and let's just pray and let's just ask God that this would be our hearts this would be our reality And that 2017, as we enter into it, it'll be different. It will be different. And then one of the pastors will come up here and they'll close our time. um, And we'll continue with service. So let's pray.